The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. The sermon text this morning is Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, What benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Bethlehem. My name is Andrew Ballard, uh, and I am on staff here at Bethlehem Baptist Church as the interim youth director, interim director of youth. You can read long-term substitute pseudo-youth pastor in there. You can say duct tape, uh, whatever you need to use. If you don't recognize my face, it's because I'm usually downstairs in the youth basement, which is why I haven't gotten to know a lot of you that I would like to get to know better, but it is my joy and my privilege to serve with the parents and among the leaders and for the students, the 6th through 12th graders of your church. Uh, I'm married to Brooke Ballard. I won't ask her to stand uh, because she would, she would get me back to that later. Uh, I have one son, Oliver, who was born right before I joined this church and before we started seminary. I'm a second-year seminary student, along with Mark, who just read, and a, a number of others, and is my joy and my privilege to speak to you this morning on Luke 6, 27 through 36. The title of this message is Gospel Foundations for Loving Our Enemies. And we read that text that we just read. It leads me first to a question. Maybe some of you are asking that question. Who is my enemy? When you hear the word enemy, does a picture of a particular person come to mind or a group of people or a type of person come to your mind? My guess is that for some of us, it may not be so apparent. We are not in the same position as the Jews of Jesus' day who felt the pressure of the Roman boot laying upon their homes and their cities and their lives. So it may not be so immediately obvious to us who our enemies are, 
and if we have any at all. Of course, that depends on who you ask. If you open up Spotify or YouTube, or if you're of a generation that's a little bit more advanced in years than the rest of us, you can go on, turn on the radio, and you can find channels and podcasts and radio stations that are just full of people. All they do, their daily lives, their work week is filled with hours and hours of them trying to tell you who your enemy is who they are, why they pose a danger to you and your family and your country, and how you can stop them. Boycott, protest, don't buy from this company, do buy from that company. Elect this leader, fight against that leader, make a scene if you need to, take a stand. Fight for your country, fight for your family, fight for your freedom. Not protesting against any of those fights, they're good fights. My question is, And all of that noise, if those noises and those voices are things you listen to, what does Jesus have to say about responding to your enemies? His voice cuts through all that noise, all those narratives, and says, I want you to show them mercy. Mercy. Mercy is not just an aspect of the Christian life. It is at the heart of the Christian life. Or as the late and wonderful pastor Timothy Keller put it, mercy isn't just the job of the Christian. Mercy is the mark of the Christian. It is essential. And it is abundantly clear that it is impossible. So, Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to do the impossible in us and through us this morning. Lord, please meet us this morning. Speak to us through your word. Your word does not go out in vain, but it will fulfill that for which you purpose and accomplish that which you sent it for. So please do that in us. We desperately need your mercy. We need to catch a glimpse of your glory in your mercy to us through your Son. The world needs to receive that mercy through us. We believe that is your plan, your design for us this morning. So please speak to us this morning and give us a glimpse of you and your Son. Amen. Amen. If you're taking notes, I have a simple outline this morning. There are really only two parts to it. First, we will see that we gain God's favor by receiving, by showing mercy. We gain God's favor by showing mercy. That's the first point. The second is like it. We gain God's favor by receiving mercy. We gain God's favor by receiving mercy. And if you're put off by that little word gain, don't worry. We're going to see what it means shortly. And the last point you could say is really just the application of those first two points, which is show mercy by mercy even to your enemies. We recall from last week that Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Plain, which as Ken Curry, our brother, showed us is very tightly parallel to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. 
Ken showed us that Jesus is drawing a contrast between two different types of groups, which continues in our passage, and we'll see is also continuing through the end of chapter 6 in Luke. On the one side, we see those who are poor and hungry and hated, and Jesus reveals that the kingdom of heaven belongs to them, assuring them that they will be satisfied, they will have laughter, and there will be and is a great reward that is in store for them. We also see that for those whom it seems to be going well in this world, those who are rich and abundantly blessed and are laughing and for all appearances have a good reputation, they do not realize that this seemingly bountiful life is all that they will receive. It is their reward in full. In Luke six twenty through 26, before our passage, Jesus flips our perspectives upside down and reorients us to understand hardship and comfort, present realities in light of heavenly realities. And now in our verses 27 through 36, he continues to turn our expectations upside down, showing us that loving, that our great reward comes through loving our enemies and showing mercy to those who hate us. Which is to say that we gain God's favor through showing mercy. We know from verse 17 that there is a great, there was a multitude of people coming to be healed and also a great crowd of Jesus' disciples. And so Jesus turns again to these disciples after addressing what Ken called the VIP crowd of the hypocrites and well-off. And he now turns back to this great crowd of his disciples. And he preaches in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. This is clearly not an abstract idea coming from Jesus. This is born out of his own context as he is dealing with enemies of his own. If you look at at the beginning of chapter 6 with me, you'll recall that Jesus recently met a man with a withered hand whom he went to heal. It says in verse 7 that the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. In verse 11, after Jesus does what they were expecting and wickedly hoping that he would do, it says that they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Is this not the perfect picture of what an enemy looks like. Someone who is hostile to you, someone who is against you, someone who wants to see you fall, someone who wants to come against you, and who, given the opportunity, will abuse and mistreat you. The hypocritical Pharisees were searching for an opportunity to do Jesus harm. They were against him and filled with rage when they saw his good works because those good works trampled on their man-made traditions and were offensive to them. So Jesus brings it up 
with his disciples. How do you deal with enemies? You're trying to be disciples of me. You're trying to be members of the kingdom of God. What does it mean then to respond to your enemies? And he says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. He goes on, and you can really just imagine him looking down the path to Golgotha, looking down the road to the cross. These are not just abstract ideas or theories or platitudes for Jesus. These are things that he is going to experience and that he knows his disciples, those who truly follow him, are going to experience as well. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs of you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. I'll briefly mention here, I do not believe that Jesus is trying to establish a whole philosophy of homeless ministry or of street ministry. I'll just throw out uh, a place you can go if you want to know more about developing a framework for how to do that well is a book called When Helping Hurts. It's a great place to start during college. We, I did a lot of uh, street ministry and even had a brother uh, in Christ come off the streets and live in my home with me and my roommate for about nine months. And I'll just say it is, when ministering to people in these circumstances, these difficult circumstances, it is far more challenging and complicated, and if you choose to do it right, rewarding than simply handing $20 bills out at a bus station. There's far more to it than that. But what Jesus is getting at here is that our mindset needs to shift away from getting even or getting back or getting what I'm owed or even getting results when it comes to the good that we do, which is very un-American. In America, we love to be efficient and productive and effective. And Jesus changes and challenges our culture. Our goal when interacting those who beg from us to, should not be to make sure, our fundamental goal should not be to make sure that we're not defrauded or cheated, that our money goes to good use and is spent for what we must, we know it must be spent for, but rather our goal is to love that person in front of us and to bless them the way that we would want to be blessed and the way that we have been blessed. Jesus summarizes the principle underneath these things with what you know as the golden rule in verse 31. And as you wish others would do unto you, do so to them. Now last week, Ken was right in saying that Jesus is turning the culture of the day, that day and this day, on its head. However, he's not adding, don't make the mistake of thinking that he's adding or contradicting anything in the Old Testament. Some people want to pit the New Testament against the Old Testament, say the Old Testament was all about works and all about justice and wrath, and now the New Testament is all about grace. 
not an accurate picture. In Matthew 7:12, Jesus says that this golden rule doesn't add to the law and the prophets, but actually summarizes them. It is the bedrock foundation for the law. It might as well be a paraphrase. It may well be a paraphrase of Leviticus 19:18, "You shall love your neighbor as yourself." So he's not correcting the Old Testament, but rather the people of his day, their drift away from the teaching of the law. So let me ask you this. If you're preaching this golden rule, if you're, if you're preaching this passage to a group of people who've never heard it before, how would you convince them to follow it? How would you convince them that it's worth applying this golden rule? You're telling a group of people, you need to love your enemies and do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Let them hit you. Let them slap you. It's November in Minnesota and you're outside and someone asks for your jacket, for your hoodie, and you need to be ready to give them the shirt off of your back as well. Help people pay rent without expecting them to pay you back. Lend out your car and don't expect any gas back in the gas tank. Dog sit, babysit, house sit. Sweep the streets and pluck the needles out of the sidewalk and refuse to expect any word of thanks for any of these good deeds. So you teach that to this group of people and someone says, why? Why should I do that? That doesn't sound very comfortable. That doesn't sound like it's in my best interests. It doesn't sound like it's going to help me. I'd rather just love those who love me, associate with people who are going to associate with me, who are like me, and love those who I know are going to love me back. How would you convince them to follow this teaching? Would you respond to that and say, well, you shouldn't want to do anything for your self-interest. It's wrong for you to be so self-centered. What you should want to do is what is right for its own sake without any interest in how it's going to affect you or benefit you or hurt you. You should want to do what is right simply for its own sake and anything other than that is selfish and wrong. Is that how you would convince them to follow this passage? It makes sense to me. That's my first instinct. Surprisingly, it's not the direction that Jesus takes us. Rather, he assumes that his audience does want a benefit and does want to do in what's in their best interest. But he reveals that the way of sinners who seek their reward in this life apart from God, in contrast to those who are seeking to be his disciples, the way of sinners is actually short-sighted and will never help them achieve the reward that they are earnestly seeking. On the other side, in contrast to the way of the world, seek my benefit apart from God through works, through self-centeredness and self-sufficiency, we have God's way, which is to trust God for justice and provision and reward. The world's way means we take it all into our own hands, and God's way means that we trust Him with it. The world's way is a life that is founded on works-oriented, self-centered, self-glorifying self-sufficiency. 
If you slap me, I'll slap you back. If you steal from me, I'm going to get it back. If you borrow from me, I better get my money back. And if you love me, sure, I'll love you back. And ironically, it is totally insufficient to deliver the reward that it promises. Read with me, continuing our passage in verse 32. If you love those, Jesus responds to these disciples responding to this way of the world. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend from those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. The first incredible thing that we see from this second paragraph is that Jesus actually expects his disciples to live their lives and do their good deeds in pursuit of a reward. The second incredible thing that we see is that self-sufficiency is utterly insufficient and even incompatible with that reward. Let me explain that. First, the reward. Jesus expects his disciples to pursue a reward, but not the reward that the world is pursuing, that the sinners are pursuing in the way of the world through themselves. He doesn't state this, but he assumes it. Look at the question, starting in verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? 33. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? 34. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? You can circle or underline if you're comfortable doing that in your Bible, or if you're not, you can write it on your journal. You can circle each of those three words. Benefit, benefit, credit. And then you can underline, fourthly, that word in verse 35, reward. They're all speaking about or referring to the same thing. Whatever benefit or credit the disciples are pursuing in 32 through 34, they find it in verse 35. Now, Brooke warned me not to do too much Greek, but I think that this isn't going to be uh, too difficult. The Greek word for benefit and credit here is the same, and it's very surprising. Charis. Charis. You recognize that word. You probably heard it before. It's usually translated as grace. In the book of Acts, the author, or Luke, our same author of our gospel we're in now, often refers to the grace of the Lord, the grace of God. And it's connected to the gospel, the reception of the gospel. The grace of God comes through the preaching of the gospel. In our book, the gospel of Luke, he often uses that word, charis, to refer to the favor of the Lord. 
The only time it ever shows up, it, it comes in the Bible 150 plus times, the only times that it's ever translated as benefit or as credit is right here in this passage. In these three moments, the significance is this. The fact that Luke, that Jesus and then Luke recording him uses the word charis here, the same word that Luke frequently uses to describe the favor or the grace of God, underscores what we already know from verse 35. That Jesus expects his disciples to pursue a real reward that only comes from the Lord. It's not the benefit or the credit that you can claim as your proper due, as your fair wages. It's not that kind of credit. Rather, it's the kind of reward that the king appoints to those who have found favor in his eyes when they have pleased him through their good actions. It is a reward that is gained but not earned. Gained but not earned. This reward, this favor and grace and benefit and credit of the Lord, favor as sons of the Most High, is better than anything that the world can offer us. And it is totally incompatible with a mindset of self-sufficiency. You could paraphrase his questions, his statements. If you love those who love you, there is no benefit to you. And if you do good to those who do good to you, that is no benefit to you. And if you lend to those from whom you would expect to receive, there is no credit to you before the Lord. Sinners all do these things, and they want nothing to do with God and His benefit. So how can we gain this reward, this favor from God as disciples. According to Jesus, it's by exercising the golden rule, by showing mercy to our enemies. Verse 31, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. He returns to that same rule in verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Jesus is teaching us, in other words, that we will gain, not earn, but gain, God's favor by showing mercy to our enemies. Just as the prince gains the favor of the king when he leads out in courage and bravery, and kindness, and justice, just like his father. Now perhaps your question is not whether this is what Jesus is teaching here. Maybe you can agree with me that that's what's in this passage. Maybe the question is, rather, how on earth can I do this? How on earth can I carry this teaching out? How can I love people who murder and want to murder preborn children? How can I love people who want to destroy God's design of marriage? 
How can I love people who want to smear our reputations, who want to destroy our businesses, and who would cheer at the seizing of our children because we refuse to participate in the lies of transgenderism? How can I love people who imprison my brothers and sisters for preaching the gospel? How can I love people who would burn my city to the ground? Anywhere else, that would be a metaphor. But the people of our city know what that question is, how to ask that question. How can we love people who are my enemies? This leads us to my second point this morning, which is that we only receive God's favor. We only gain God's favor by receiving His mercy. Which is to say that we ourselves, Christian, are only put in a favorable position with God to begin with through the mercy that is shown to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus says in verses 35 through 36, Love your enemies, do good, and lend. Expect nothing in return, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. In summary, be merciful as your Father is merciful. We know that God is merciful as far back as Exodus 34, that word for mercy used in this passage only, only comes up in the New Testament right here in our passage, but in the Old Testament, it goes all the way back to Exodus 34. Moses says, show me your glory, Lord. And God puts him in the cleft of the rock and says, I'm going to make my name and my glory pass before you. And he announces, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We know going back to the garden, when God clothed Adam and Eve with the animal skins and covered their nakedness, covered their shame, covered their sins, we know that he's merciful from everything in this book all the way up to the New Testament is full of the knowledge that he is merciful. But we only come to know him as merciful, as a merciful father through the mercy that is shown to us in his son, Jesus Christ. So the fulfillment of the golden rule which gains us a good reward with God is only possible because of the mercy that God has shown us in his Son. Before we ask ourselves, do I love my enemies? We should ask, do I love the good news that Jesus died for me while I was God's enemy? Do I love the good news that Jesus died for me while I was his enemy? The truth is that we did not stand at first in the place of Jesus' disciples, nor even in the place of the man with the withered hand who was in need of grace, in need of mercy. But perhaps first and foremost, we stood in the place of the hypocritical Pharisees. 
We are, we were the enemies that Jesus' disciples were commanded to love. Colossians 1, 21 through 22 says that you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and that word hostile is the same as the word for enemy in our passage. You who are hostile or an enemy to God, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Romans 5.10 says that we were reconciled to God by the death of his son while we were enemies of him. And Romans 8, 7 gives us the fundamental key to understanding the condition of our own hearts before salvation and of the hearts of those who are hostile to us and to God now. It says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. At the bottom of all our opposition, of all opposition or hostility against us, from those who hate Christians, is a hatred of God. And we expect this. We know this is something we're going to face. Jesus said in John 15, 19 through 20, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. So we see that hatred of Christians is merely an overflow of hatred of God. Just as our love for our enemies is nothing more and nothing less than an overflow of our love for God. I see here two, two overflows, two springs, if you will. On the one hand, the spring of living water bursts forth in praise and in love, and in joy, and in gratitude to God. From life to life to life to life, you get close close to this spring, and you're going to be blessed by the overflow. A cool mist surrounds it, with the rainbow bouncing off all the particles in the air. And you come up to it, and the sweet water overflows into your hands or into the cups of weary travelers. And his refreshment. This is the heart of those who have set their hope on Christ and have received the mercy of God. On the other hand, there's a bubbling, churning pit of tar, heat and humidity and stench thicken the air around this pit, around this spring, if you will. With every pop, steaming tar is flung into the air. If you get too close to this pit, you're going to run the risk of being splattered as flecks land on your forearms, your hair is singed, your skin is burned, and your clothes are stained. And this is a picture of the heart that is hostile to God. For some of you, this may be 
your heart towards God. You may not know why you feel hostility towards those in your life, why you're dealing with frustration and anger, why there's no sense of peace in your heart. And you might have a thousand reasons from your circumstances, from your surroundings, from other people that you can lay the blame on. But ultimately, you're not going to find peace until you find reconciliation between you and God. And you need him to pour his love into your heart. Both of these, spring of water, spring of tar, pit of tar, are the hearts of men as they relate to God. When people meet us, what they experience is an overflow of what is in our hearts towards our Creator. And the significance of this, Christians, is that we can only give our neighbors grace and love and mercy if that's what's in our hearts and is what we've received from God. If the mercy in your heart has gone dry, if you're feeling as you're hearing these words that I don't have mercy to give, I don't have love for my friends, let alone for my enemies, the solution is not for you to continue pouring out of that cup and turning it over, shaking it to try and see if you can get something. You need to go back to the fountain. You need to go back to the spring of mercy that God has for you in His Son. And you turn to receive that mercy for yourself. On the other hand, we must recognize that when we are hated or cursed or slandered or abused by the world, Christians, take a step back. It's nothing more than the flecks of tar being flung into the air and landing on us. It is also an overflow of their hearts towards God. Those flecks, these flecks of abuse and hatred and slander and even harm are no real threat to us. They can kill the body, but they cannot destroy the soul. There might be, at the most, in our context, at the most that we're going to run into is discomfort and offensiveness. So, my encouragement is do not be short-sighted. See the bigger issue, the root issue, which is that their hearts are set against God and they hate their Creator. Let me say briefly, for some of you, this discussion of enemies is not an abstract question because it hits directly at home. For some of you, the most clear enemy to Christ and to the gospel and to you and your faith and your Christianity in your life is a member of your own family. Some of you know the pain and confusion and disorientation and hurt of having a child or a loved one, a deep, deeply cherished loved one, hate your faith and hate your God, and they are hostile towards you. Now, I just want you to know, if that's you this morning, I've been praying for you this week. My heart goes out to you. It might be a child who's still in your home, a teenager, a young one, or it might be an adult child 
And I can't imagine that pain and that difficulty. But I do think that this passage offers us a great source of hope if you're in that place, a firm railing for you to hold on to. In those moments that are difficult, moments of conflict, I think it's a great hope to cling to, a hope that God can save even them because he has saved even us. When we face enemies, wherever they come from, when we are hated and cursed and abused and mistreated, we have got to look past those bursting bubbles and see the real issue at the root, the pit. And our hope is that our faith, our trust, our confidence, and our prayer is that God will transform those pits of tar into springs of living water. That he will transform that heart-deep hatred of him into a heart that bursts forth into gratitude and praise, just like he has done in our own hearts. We want our enemies, and we pray our enemies will speak Romans 5.5 5, with us that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Pray that for your brothers and sisters. I'm sorry, pray that for your enemies, brothers and sisters. Prayer is perhaps the most important application that we can make from this passage. We're told to love and to do good and to bless, but it is the step of prayer that will catapult us into these other steps because it's got to be the Holy Spirit doing it in us, working in us to will and to work for God's good pleasure. According to Tim Keller, this is because prayer takes us back into the position of needing mercy, which is at the heart of the gospel. He says, it is hard to say angry at someone if you are praying for them. It is also hard to stay angry unless you feel superior. And it is hard to feel superior if you are praying for them, since in prayer you approach God as a forgiven sinner. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, we have a very good reward to look forward to. When we show mercy, we will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, namely, to us, to me. So let's show mercy even to our enemies as our Heavenly Father has shown mercy to us. Pray with me. Lord, as you said at the beginning, this is just an impossible task. This is an absolutely impossible miracle that no one can accomplish is only possible because you have done it in us and for us and through us. So we ask that you would do that again this morning, this week, as we have opportunities, as we are met with utterly surprising, perhaps, and unexpected conflicts with enemies. Would you show your love to them through us and Help us to overcome evil by doing good. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. 
Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.